Well, good morning. Uh, If you're new to Central, this is your first time. My name is Tyler, and I'm one of the pastors here. If you're watching online, I just want to say welcome. I am so excited to be with you. See, today, as you heard in the bumper video, we're wrapping up this series talking about family. What does it mean to be family? What does it mean to be this group that is deeply, deeply connected? Really, this series has been about celebrating the diversity that we see here. We've said that no matter if you're young or old, black or white, male or female, what your past or your present has looked like, the series has been about saying, we want you to be here, we want you to belong. But just because we celebrate our diversity doesn't mean that precludes us from the struggles we have of being a diverse group of people. And so we're thinking, what does it look like to be family? What does it look like to be connected amidst our differences, amidst our brokenness? As I was preparing for this morning, I thought of a story that happened to me several years ago. It was before I moved back to to Michigan. And there was this family that I was really close to, and they had a daughter who was in elementary school. And they asked me to pick her up from school for one day. And so I went and picked her up, and this girl was normally just the happiest-go-lucky, just full of life and joy. Uh... And she got into my car that day after school, and she barely said hello. She just got in, buckled herself up, and looked straight forward. And so I'm driving, thinking, what is going on here? This isn't right. And and I was trying to figure out, okay, there's something going on. How do I get into this conversation? How do I start this conversation? We'll call her Nora. Her name's not Nora, but I like that name. And so I said... Hey, Nora, is everything okay? It was one of those questions that I knew the answer to, but I didn't know how else to get into the conversation. So I asked a question that I knew the answer to. And as those words left my mouth, before I finished that question, tears began to roll down her face and she kind of melted into the chair. And she shared with me how that day at recess, she was hanging out with some girls she thought were her friends and she began to share something that was really sensitive, really vulnerable to her. And she shared this to bring them into that so they could, you know, walk with her through, through this struggle. And then she asked them not to share that with anyone because it was so sensitive and, it, and it, was, it was private and she didn't want everybody to know. And she said by the time she got back into her class after lunch, the entire class knew. And they were looking at her and they were whispering and they were laughing. And she said it got so bad that the teacher had to get involved and discipline the entire class. And then she looked at me and she said, I'm never going to trust someone again. Yeah. And, I, and I'll be honest, my, my first two thoughts weren't the best. My first thought, when she said, I'm never going to trust anybody again, was, darn right you're not. Because you've got your mom and you've got your dad and you've got me, and that's all you need, girl. Like, you just talk to us, we will be with you the entire time. When you go to college, we'll move away, we'll get in a little apartment, and, and we'll just be there your entire life. You don't need anybody else. But my second thought was probably even a little bit worse than that. Because I thought to myself, I'm going to find out who these girls were. And I probably won't get in a fight with elementary girls, but I'll find their parents. And I felt like there was this, like, this parental anger. I don't know if you've seen the movie Taken, but I felt like Liam Neeson when I was going to be like, you know, I have a particular set of skills and I will find you. <laughs> Luckily, that's not what I did. Luckily, I, I, I had gained some wisdom from other people. And so Nora and I were able to have a conversation 
about trust and about relationships, about friendship. But how do we become, how do we maintain, how are, how are we this group of deeply connected people amidst our brokenness? And maybe it hasn't been that someone has broken your trust, but maybe you've never had trust established with someone. Where do you begin? How do we model a better way of being in a world that seems so void of purpose and intentionality when it comes to relationships? We live in a world where it seems harder and harder to truly connect a world of Facebook acquaintances where you have this illusion of, of, of really knowing people without the reality of actually having that intimacy, of actually being known or knowing someone else. One of my favorite shows is an old show on CBS, and uh, it's called The Mentalist. And at one point, the main character, Patrick, in it says that it turns out that being understood is an underrated pleasure. It turns out that being understood is an underrated pleasure. So how do we begin amidst our differences, as people who who look differently, think differently, vote differently, act differently, how do we become a group of people who are deeply connected? I want to look at a story together from the Gospel of Luke. Uh, And it's a story that I think can help us a little bit in this. Uh, It comes from Luke chapter 7. If you have your Bibles, you can read along, or else it's going to be on the screen. Luke chapter 7, starting at verse 11. It says, Soon afterwards, he went to a city. He is Jesus. Soon afterwards, he went to a city called Nan, and his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. As he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. A sizable crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, Do not weep. And he came up and touched the coffin, and the bearers came to a halt. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. The dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Fear gripped all of them, and they began glorifying God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. This report concerning him went out all over Judea and in all of the surrounding district. So Jesus is, is coming up to the city, and as he's coming up with all of his, his posse, there's another group, a processional, coming out of the city. And we see that there is this woman who's a widow who's going to bury her only son. I think to understand this story better, it would help us to understand the author, Luke, and kind of the context of, of, of what he's writing for. Because for Luke, as he writes this book, and really as he writes this book in Acts, if you look at those books, they're kind of part one and part two of the same story. Luke is the author of both Luke and Acts. But for Luke, as he's writing this, these aren't just historical events that he's reporting, but for Luke, he is convinced that these stories, that this Jesus is the fulfillment of God's long-promised covenant between God and Israel and the world. And so Luke writes these books to, to, one, say that, but then to demonstrate and show what that actually looks like. And so if we flip back a little bit in Luke, a couple pages, he starts off the book uh, by kind of giving his thesis, what he thinks God's mission is. And then he goes on to show what that looks like. And so if you have your Bibles, flip back just like a page to Luke 4. Because in the story, Jesus enters into the synagogue and he grabs the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and he unrolls it and he begins to read from it. 
And Jesus, in, in, in Luke 4, starting at verse 18, says this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So this, for Luke, is God's mission. This is, this is what it's all about. And he lists those things, proclaim good news, proclaim freedom, recovery of sight for the blind, set the oppressed free, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This, for Luke, is God's mission. And then he goes on to explain what that looks like. But it's important to note that in this passage, this, this, the language that's used here, when, when Luke, or actually Isaiah, writes good news to the poor, the word poor here is a Hebrew word, and it doesn't just mean those that don't have a, like a strong financial situation. It's not just for those who don't have a lot of money. But here, poor is for everyone who has low social standing, for the disabled, in those days women and children, and even those whose actions have kind of removed them from being on the inside of social structure, the outcasts. And so Luke, what he wants everyone to know, what he wants his readers to know, is that God's kingdom is going to be especially good news to these people. And so he paints this picture of God's mission, and then he goes on for the next several chapters to demonstrate what that looks like. And he tells stories of Jesus uh, uh, driving out demons, and Jesus feeding people, and Jesus healing people, and Jesus uh, uh, cleansing this man who has leprosy. And all of those things Luke is using to demonstrate that this is a foretaste of what God's kingdom will be like. It's as if, as if Luke is wanting us to see that God's kingdom is kind of like putting on a new pair of glasses. Have you ever, like, taken someone else's glasses and put them on, and all of a sudden you're like, what in the world? Like, taking your grandpa's glasses and put them on, and they're, like, that thick, and, and, and you're like, how in the world? No, this explains your driving. Because you realize that people see the world differently. That through their glasses, their perspective is different. And that's kind of what is happening here. Luke is trying to explain that in God's kingdom, it's like getting a new set of glasses. That you see the world in different ways and you see people in different ways when your perspective is shifted. And so then we get to this story in Luke 7 of this woman. But not just this woman. This widow, and we've talked before uh, in the Wonder Woman series and in other series. Uh, in in Jesus's day, a woman relied on her husband and her sons for a sense of safety and sustenance. That that if if a woman was married and her husband died, she went and kind of belonged to her sons, and her sons were there to take and care at, and care for her, look after her. And so the fact that this woman, who is said to be a widow, but now has also lost her only son. We see that this woman is financially and socially, economically disadvantaged among Israel's people. And not only that, but Luke says that she's from Nan, which really serves no purpose other than to say, this is, this is like a no-name place. This is the only place in all the scripture where the city is mentioned. And yet this is the place where Jesus moves. As she's walking out with her son to bury her son, it's very probable that she's not just mourning the loss of his life, 
But as she walks out of the city to bury her son, she's very likely also mourning the loss of her own life. For at this point, the scene is, is grim and it's bleak because at this point, her life is effectively over. And so the miracle of this story is not just that Jesus raises this boy from the dead, but the miracle is that in raising him from the dead, Jesus is restoring two lives, the boy and his mother. And this story is so rich, and there are so many different places we could go. But for our purposes today, this story hinges on a moment, on a complex and profound moment that can help us. In Luke 7, verse 13, it says, When he saw her, when Jesus saw her, why why does Luke include that? Why does Luke need to go out of his way to mention that Jesus saw her? I don't have to stand up here and say, Okay, I see you. Like, I can see you sitting right there. You just assume that I can see you, right? Like, like seeing uh, is about as involuntary as breathing. And, and, and we don't need to mention, as Jesus was breathing, this happened. We just assume Jesus is breathing. And we assume that as something happens, Jesus probably sees it. But Luke goes out of his way to mention that Jesus saw her. And I, I almost wonder if Luke is trying to, to help us see that there are different levels of sight. That you can see someone, or you can see someone. And I don't know, I'm not an optometrist, so I don't know like when light is re- reflected and it enters into your eyes and then your, your eyes and your brain process it so you have these images. I don't know how all of that works. But it, Luke is trying to communicate that that's not just what happened for Jesus. He didn't just see this woman. He saw this woman. There's a story from a guy named John Gottman who's a clinical psychologist and researcher who actually studies relationships and, and family and trust and shame. Uh, he's been doing that for over 30 years But he tells this story, and he uses it to talk about trust and how trust is built. But he tells the story of laying in bed one night, and he was about 10 pages from finishing his murder mystery book. And he thought he knew who the murderer was, but he wasn't sure. And he just wanted to hunker down and finish that book. Have you ever been there and just like, maybe it's a book, or maybe it's like, you know, you're binge-watching something on Netflix, and you're like, I just have one more episode. I know it's 1 a.m., but I have one more episode. And so he said, I decided I was going to get out of bed, go down the hall, brush my teeth, wash my face, get ready for bed, get back in, and finish my book. And so he got out of bed, and as he was going down the hall, he, out of the corner of his eye, saw into his own bathroom, where his wife was sitting. And she was sitting in front of the mirror, brushing her hair, and he could tell that she was crying. And he said, it was one of those moments where it was really inconvenient that I saw her. But it was also one of those moments where she probably didn't know that I saw her. That I, I could have kept going... And she wouldn't have known that I actually, I actually saw what she was doing. He said, we have these moments where we see people, but it's like, almost like it's more convenient if we pretend we didn't see that. If it's out of the corner of our eye, we think, oh, you know, he probably didn't notice that I saw him. Or we have those calls. Someone, we, we look and it's caller ID and we think, oh my goodness, this person. I know what's going on. I know they've got a lot of struggles, but I don't know if I can take this call right now. This is just really inconvenient. Yes or no? Do you guys have these moments? Yes, a lot of guilty yesing. Yeah. But he said he, he went into the bathroom and he took the brush out of her hand and he began to brush her hair. And they began to talk. And he said, as small of a moment that was, 
that that was a profound moment for their relationship and their trust and in their intimacy. But I think that helps us. You know, we can see someone. Or we can see someone. Are you tracking with me? Do you know what I'm saying? We can see someone or we can see someone. But what, what we read here from Jesus is, is when he sees her and, and really sees her, something happens. It's almost as if he's able to put on her glasses for a moment and see life through her eyes because he sees, okay, there's, there's no husband that's walking with her and there doesn't seem to be any other sons. So as he sees her, it's like he can take her perspective, put on her glasses, and see how hopeless and how, how bleak this situation looks like for this woman. But here's what I love. Is that it's not he just sees her. But the verse goes on to say that he sees her and he has compassion on her. His, something happens. His seeing does something to him. And it's interesting that, that Luke mentions compassion here. Uh, Luke is a little bit more stoic than, than Matthew and Mark. We've got the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all very similar. John's kind of out in his own little world. Uh, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke are similar. A- and Luke is more stoic than Matthew and Mark. Matthew and Mark are pretty loose and free with this word of compassion. I mean, they, they just throw it around. It's, it's like uh, Pastor Rob telling a corny bad joke on a, like a sermon. Like, it happens a lot for Matthew and Mark. But for Luke, not so much. In fact, the only other two times that Luke uses this word compassion in the rest of his book after this is in the story of the Good Samaritan and the story of the prodigal son. Luke seems to be more calculated, more careful on what he wants to point to as compassion. And this word here from compassion is this Greek word, splachnitzomai. Which part of that word comes from this, the origin of, of like guts. Because for Jesus, in this word of compassion, it's not just about having this feeling. But this, fe- this feeling, this, this, this compassion is deep and it's visceral. It's almost as if they, this word is like your organs are getting tied into knots. Something deeper is happening here for Jesus when he sees her and he has compassion on her. This compassion can't just see it and go on, but this compassion is compelled to move, and Jesus is motivated to act when he sees her. This compassion changes his posture and his position towards this woman. See, as we've been talking about things today, the the word that I haven't said, but we've been talking about this entire time, is empathy. That for Jesus, seeing leads to empathy. And empathy is a conduit through which connection happens. Let me say that one more time. When we really see someone, when we really see something, all of a sudden, that leads to empathy. And empathy becomes a conduit through which connection can happen. See, a a lot of times we use sympathy and empathy interchangeably. But really, these words are very different in, in what they mean and how they're played out. Sympathy is this idea for feeling for someone. Whereas empathy is about feeling with someone. If I could paint you a picture of these two words. Imagine you come up to a pit and there's someone in the pit. Sympathy would bring you to the edge of the pit to look down at the person and say, wow, yeah, that's really bad. I'm glad I'm not down there. I'm really sorry for you. That must stink. That's sympathy. 
You feel bad for someone. You feel for someone. Empathy would, would crawl down into that pit, would sit with that person, would put their glasses on, would see the world through their perspective, would seek to understand. See, em- empathy fuels connection, whereas sympathy actually drives disconnection. But what's important for us to see in all of this is that this kind of scene that we see here from Jesus, this kind of scene and this kind of empathy can't happen at a distance. That for Jesus, one of the, one of the, the, the biggest parts of the gospel, one of the biggest tenets of the gospel is this idea of proximity. That with the gospel, we are constantly called to change our proximity to God and to others. Because sympathy can stand back here and just say, oh yeah, sorry about that, that must stink. But empathy changes our proximity. Empathy moves in and empathy and seeing can't happen from a distance. We've been talking for, for a while about this growing together and this growing young stuff. And we've done assessments and we've done focus groups, we've done interviews, we've talked to a lot of you. Because we want to be a church that whether you're young or old, whatever you are, we want you to feel like you're valued, like you're heard, like this is a place that you can belong and connect. But as we've done all of our our listening, the thing we keep hearing time and time again is this idea of empathy. That empathy is the way forward. I think one of our struggles is we really want people to understand us. But oftentimes, we're not willing to have the humility and the patience to understand someone else. And as we think about this across generations, you heard Matthew talk about it in the video, that that, that he loves the intergenerational aspect and, and that we could use more of that. That empathy helps us to put on the glasses of someone else. That rather than standing in a distance and talking about all oh, these young people and, and their phone and, and their entitlement and their lazy, empathy calls us to move closer, to ask why, to get to know them, to understand. But here's the other part of this. Because as we've been talking about growing young, I feel like some people have heard that we want to be a young church. That's not the case. Because this goes both ways. And the young people who are sitting in this service hear me that, that, that it's our responsibility to go to people who are a little bit older and say, let me understand your world. Let me see your glasses. What is your perspective? Because as much as, as, as the young people can teach us older people something, the people who have gone before that have had years of experience and that wisdom has been gained that only life can teach, that our younger people can look to our older people and say, teach me. But both of those postures start with seeing and empathizing before the connection. Uh, we just a few weeks ago had our senior Sunday. It's one of my favorite times of the year where we get to celebrate with senior high schoolers um, or senior seniors in high school and their families as they graduate and go on to what's next. And, and one of my favorite parts of that is that we do this video where we ask some questions and they're able to uh, just kind of tell us, we get to know them a little bit more, we show it in the Sunday night service. And one of the questions I asked this year is, who is someone from Central who's made an impact on your life? And one of our students, she goes by Brenna, Brenna, her name is Brianna. I asked her this question, and as she was getting ready to answer, I was already thinking, who is she going to say? I, I wonder who she's going to say. And I had some ideas. 
But then she began to share that the person who's had maybe the biggest impact on her at Central was her Sunday school teacher from elementary, second and third grade, Joyce Spears. Is Joyce in this room? She's teaching Sunday school. Okay, so next service. (laughs) Of course she is. She's been teaching Sunday school for over 30 years now in elementary. That's right, you can clap for that. But as Brenna shared that with me, I began to wonder, okay, Joyce must have done something big for you. She must have shown up in a big way to make that kind of impact. And so I said, I called her this Friday, actually. I called Brenna and said, hey, so tell me a little bit more about Joyce. What has Joyce done for you? And as I was ready for her to say, oh, I mean, she did, it's just this big thing. She said, well, anytime she sees me in the hallway, she remembers my name. She remembers what grade I'm in right now. I haven't had Sunday school with her in like 10 years, yet she still asks how I'm doing. She asks about my family. I I just know she cares about me. They share a birthday, and so every year they decide what birthday they want to celebrate. I bet Joyce likes that game. But it wasn't that Joyce did something huge for Brenna. It's that Joyce saw Brenna. She saw her, and that scene was driven to empathy, which fueled connection. See, I I need to say this because, because this series has been about the people that we sit with in the pews and the people we see in the hallways in this church, and we absolutely want this place to feel like a family and to have that kind of connection. Absolutely. But it would be a disservice to this story to say that that connection stopped when we left this building. It would be a disservice to what Jesus did in this moment because this type of seeing and empathy and connection should fuel every one of our interactions, whether we're walking by someone in the halls of this church or walking by them in the sidewalks in our neighborhood, whether we're seeing them at work or school. We have an opportunity to see people. You know, they say that seeing someone and loving someone is so close that for the average person, they're the same. How can we see people in a new way, and how can that seeing transform our interactions and our connection with them? If you don't hear anything else this morning, I want you to hear this, that God sees you. God sees you, but not only does he see you, but God is delighted in you. Father, we, we come to you today as, as people that in Jesus you offer us a better way. A way that sees people, that empathizes with people, that allows us to connect in new and holy ways. So God, I pray for us this week that, that we would be a people who see well. Would we live our lives, would we, we live into this resurrected life in such a way that people say God is at work among them? Would you help us in that, Lord? We thank you for today. We thank you for this opportunity to gather. Give us eyes to see. In your name we pray. Amen.